Question 103, how is baptism rightly administered? This is our final question. Here's the answer. Baptism is rightly administered by immersion or dipping the whole body of the believer in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit according to Christ's institution and the practices of the apostles and not by sprinkling or pouring of water or dipping some part of the body after the tradition of men. So a very, you'll notice the explanations are very Protestant. They're very regulative principle. They're very reformed. Um, Again, right or wrong, that's that's what's being attempted here is is to read the Bible as a consistent um, reformed Christian. Well, here's, here's question one. Is administering baptism correctly of concern to God? Now, this is an important question to ask simply because it's very obvious in our day that the answer to that in most people's mind is no. It's not really important what we do or how we do it or even who we do it to. And I'm not really talking about, um, I'm not really referring here to uh, uh, true brethren, especially Reformed, who understand the mode or the manner of baptism to be something other than immersion. I'm talking about people who say it doesn't really matter who you do it to or who does it or how it's done or whether it's with water or something else. or They just trivialize it all. They think that all of these things are uh, left to the uh, decisions of men, and so uh, they, they often change these things. So we have to ask this question, is administering baptism correctly, that is, in the manner God teaches in the Bible, of concern to God? And of course, the short answer is yes. And the reason is because he has revealed this in the scriptures. Some might ask, well, aren't we being overly scrupulous in this area? I mean, and here's the argument that's always used in this and a million other places, Well, good men disagree about this. (laughs) They disagree on how it's to be done. So why are we so concerned about the details? Do you notice the movement of thought? The movement of thought isn't from God and the Bible to how we should practice. It's, well, well well-intentioned people disagree about this. So we wouldn't want to upset anyone or, or needlessly raise barriers. But the people who are important about the question of how to baptize are not you and me. It's it's the Trinity. Those are the persons that are important to ask. Why are we so concerned about these details? Because God is concerned with these details. In matters of his law, whether it's moral or ceremonial, God desires obedience to the degree of the precision of his revelation. God requires of us to obey to the degree of precision that he has revealed. In some areas of life, such as men's vocations, he simply gives very, very broad outlines. And we have a great deal of freedom about how and when and where to go about um, our employments, for example. But in other areas of life, especially in church life, God is often quite uh, specific. And we see this 
principle in Scripture in many, many places. One of the most dramatic examples is, of course, the Old Testament example of David bringing the um, ark into the city. It had been out because it had been captured by the Philistines, and and so it sat in a person's house and, and blessed him. And David decided, well, we, we need to bring that cart, or we need to bring that ark into the city. Now, David didn't consider whether or not God cared about how it was transported. I mean, why would God care how it's transported? All that's really important is that it be in the right place. I mean, we can we can imagine him thinking this, right? And and reasonably so in other areas of life. But God had actually in his law had the ark built in a certain way with instructions of how it was to be transported. And so instead of two long sticks made of a certain kind of wood and covered with metal and carried by priests, they put it on a cart. Of course, you know the story. Uzzah was helping with the cart. He thought the ark was going to fall off. Um, What a terrible disaster that would be if the ark hit the ground. And as R.C. Sproul has rather famously said, he considered his hand holier than the ground, and he reached out to steady the ark, and of course he was struck dead. You say, well, Pastor, that's a rather extreme example. Well, in one sense it is, and God doesn't always, uh, praise his name, strike us down when we um, do some ceremonial thing wrong. But it shows very clearly that because, because God isn't unjust, he's not overdoing it here. He's not exaggerating a punishment. He's showing that he really did care, not only about the ark and its location, but how it was transported. We might say, why would God care about that? It really doesn't matter why God cares about it. He did, he does, and it needed to be done the right way. Um, The simple fact was they didn't obey him. So God took their disobedience seriously And even though presumably their motive was good, he didn't bless this move. That's found in 2 Chronicles 15, 13 in particular. Notice it wasn't just a wrong matter, it was a wrong manner that was displeasing to God. It was a question of how, not what. They did a good thing. They brought the ark to Jerusalem, but they did it in a wrong way. Well, so I would also argue in many, many areas of church life, it's right to do the right thing that God commands, but we also need to do it in the way he's instructed. Well, that's also true for baptism. It is good to baptize, but we ought to do it in a manner that is prescribed by God. And we believe that God has done that in the Bible, that he has, in fact, told us how to do this. And so the question of what is often called the mode of baptism, the how of the believer in water, uh, what's the relationship there? The mode is, uh, is important to God. We believe that. All right? Questions about that before we, before we go on to... Um, teach what we believe the Bible teaches about this. All right, question two. What element must be used in scriptural baptism? The answer is water. That's the element that must be used in scriptural baptism. 
How would you prove this? Well, texts such as Acts 8, 36 and 38. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Or John 3.23, now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. Well, of course, the only natural way to understand these verses is that baptism, baptisms were into or with water, right? It says in every case actually into, but not, not with, but nonetheless using water. You say, well, Pastor, that seems pretty obvious. Why would you even ask this question? Well, we only ask these kinds of questions because it means that somebody in the past in church history has answered it wrongly. Does anyone know know who rather famously uh, denied that water was the the proper uh, element to be used or substance to be used in baptism? Anyone know? Well, it was the Quakers. Uh, one of the one of the ways to cheat in these 1689 style um, uh, times of teaching is, in almost all cases, they're defending against two extremes: Roman Catholicism on the one hand, and and Quakerism on the other hand. It very much parallels today: uh, Roman Catholicism and liberalism on the one hand. And, and uh, the charismatic movement on, on, the, on the other side. Uh, the Quakers had a great deal in common with them in terms of interpretive principles, etc. Um, they, they said, oh no, all the baptisms in the New Testament are, are just, they're with the Spirit. Uh, the days of the physical are gone, the age of the Spirit is here, and so we don't baptize with, with water any longer, it's only in the Spirit. Um, They called them carnal or fleshly exercises. And so, of course, there were a lot of pamphlets written by Baptists against that view and and rebuttaled by the Quakers. So, this is of concern to God, and the element should be water. Thirdly, what is the proper mode of baptism? In other words, what's the relationship between the believer and water. How is water to be administered to the believer? And the answer given in our catechism answer is this. Immersing or dipping the entire body in water is the proper mode of baptism. The word is often translated in non-biblical Greek as submerge. It is to submerge the believer in the God-ordained element of water. Now, those are all the details that we have, and I'll explain why we believe that it does mean that in just a moment. But arguments about, well, should it be face up into the water, face down into the water, dumped into the water should the water and this is these are all real arguments that have been held in the very early church it was often the question of was it in running water or in water that was still Uh, they believed that running water much better portrayed the movement of the spirit 
And so whenever possible, it was done in running water. And while a person may choose those things and, and have a preference in one sense, none of those things are delineated or detailed in Scripture. It just says, baptizo and water. Now, let me just say, before we go on to the next question, well, let me, let me do that, and then I'll explain what I was thinking. How, how do we prove this from the Bible? Question four, how is this proven from Scripture? Well, let me give you three reasons or arguments. The first is simply the meaning of the word baptize. The word baptize, remember, is not an English word. It was a made-up word uh, because they did not want to translate the Greek word. The word is, is commonly found in both secular and religious Greek. And in secular, everyday Greek, it means literally to immerse, to dip, to submerge. I have given you examples before. There are entire books that contain nothing in them except examples in the Greek of the word baptizo and its various forms, both in literal and in figurative language. And so it's very easy, frankly, to prove that this is what it means. It means to go under the water. For example, when a ship would sink, the Greeks would ordinarily talk about it as being baptized. It didn't flounder in the water. It didn't get sprayed with water. It didn't have a wave uh, rush over the front of the boat. It meant it sank. It was submerged in the water. For hundreds of years, this word was used in the industry of dyeing cloth. A very important industry back then, of course. And when the cloth was submerged or dipped in the water to dye it, it was baptized. Right? In fact, the earlier word bapto, which obviously is related, was, so, was used so often for this purpose that it literally came to mean to dye a cloth. So it stopped meaning submerge. That was just the method that it happened. And so this word baptize uh, began to be used to be able to express what the other word used to mean. Again, to immerse, to dip, to submerge. Like many words, baptizo has a literal and a figurative meaning. We find both of these in the New Testament. Figuratively, the word means to be overwhelmed, to go through an ordeal, to plunge. So, for example, Christ had a baptism. Right? He's not talking about the one John gave him. He's talking about the baptism of suffering, his death. He was overwhelmed with sorrow and with suffering. He died. <laughs> and so sometimes the word means death by violence or to be engulfed in troubles or to be engulfed or overwhelmed by debt or sleep or sorrow. Right? Again, it's not to be sprinkled with sorrow. 
It's not to get uh, washed with a little bit of debt. It's to be overwhelmed, to be overcome, to be submerged in it. Right? And frankly, the word really doesn't ever mean anything else. It, it's like most words. Of course, it has a range of meaning. Um, words don't just mean one one very specific thing, at least rarely do they. They have a range of meaning. But that range is fairly fixed and clear, and that is certainly true with this word. Um, the Greek Orthodox Church understands what baptizo means. I mean, the word is their language. Yes, they baptize infants, but how do they baptize infants? They immerse them three times. They don't pour water on them. They don't flick water on them. They don't bring a bowl and they immerse because that's what baptized means. Um, in the Septuagint, which you'll remember is the Old Testament translated into Greek, and it's the Bible that most of our New Testament quotations come from. In the book of Hebrews, all of the quotations are of the Septuagint. None of them are of the original Hebrew. All right, so uh, it was the Bible in use in Jesus's day. There are several places where this word baptizo is used. Um, in 2 Kings 5.14, you know the story of Naaman, right? He had leprosy. The little servant girl said, oh, you need to go listen to the prophet. He'll tell you what to do. He said, oh, you've got to go dip yourself in the river, River Jordan, seven times. He complained, oh, I've got, we got good water, good rivers up here. No, you have to go to this one. Well, when he finally obeyed, here's what it says he did. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the Lord, and his flesh was restored. You see, he was washed by immersion, just, just as we are. Washed by immersion. And there's a figurative use in the Septuagint, in Isaiah 21.4, my mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. Horror baptizes me. <laughs> I come under horror. So this is not light drops of trouble. It's being immersed in it. It's being overtaken and lost in it, being plunged into it. So the extra-biblical use of baptize demonstrates the meaning of submerging, dipping, and engulfing. And let me say as an aside, um, if you think this is a purely Baptist way of defining this word, uh, go read Luther, go read Calvin, see what they say the word means. They agree that it means immerse or dip. Right? Now it's true that they practiced other forms of what they would call baptism, yes, but they don't do that on the basis of this word. They don't argue that this word means other things. They say, yes, the, the word means immerse. That's all the word means. However, God understands if in cold climates we don't immerse people. That's literally what they say sometimes, right? Um, very unlike Master Calvin, my, my favorite theologian, all right? But that's the first answer, simply from the meaning of the word. And this is why some Baptists, and I'll, I'll count myself in them generally, in this school, say um, you shouldn't be talking about the mode of baptism. That's to give over the argument already uh, to the other side. 
Do we talk about a mode of sprinkling? Do we talk about a mode of pouring? Do we talk a how-to of immersing? Well, we immerse by sprinkling. We immerse by... That's nonsense. Um, We introduce the word mode, frankly. uh, It's often introduced to make it sound as if scripturally there are multiple options here. And which one do you prefer? There is only one mode in immersion. And there's only one word. There are Greek words that mean pour. There are Greek words that mean sprinkle. And they are used, but they are never used of baptism. All right? Which is why in our uh, church practice, uh, we only baptize by immersion. Yes, we will accept, as we've recently learned about, other modes out of uh, kindness, out of trying to be as broad as we can with brothers and sisters who differ. Um, And we are even glad to do that in a certain sense. But we don't actually believe that baptism means anything other than, well, baptism, immersion, submersion. So that's the first reason, the meaning of the word. And again, I have books on my shelf that are nothing other than listing of dozens and hundreds of uses of baptize. So it's, this is very easy to follow up on if you would like to do that yourself. Secondly, from the circumstances of New Testament baptisms. Now, I wouldn't call this, strictly speaking, a proof. None of these directly say only submersion. But many of the examples are given in such a way that it's it, it's really difficult to picture that you went through all of that so you could dip a little bit of water and sprinkle it over the head of someone. Let me give you some examples. One set of circumstances in some of the New Testament baptisms are clear, and that's this, that the baptizer and the baptized, so the administrator and the one being baptized, go down into the water. They don't come to the side of the water. That's never described. They never pour water into a bowl or a utensil or a large urn or anything else. When it is described, they always go down into the water. Mark 1.5 The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, that is John the Baptist, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. As Jesus, verse 10, as Jesus was coming up out of the water... And on it goes. You know, the the dove comes down and God, the Father's voice, speaks. Again, surely the most natural and obvious way to understand coming up out of the water is that he was submerged in the water. In fact, the word normally used, the preposition normally used with baptism is into. It's not even in. It's into. It's very clear. Acts 8, 38 and 39. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And Philip immersed him, baptized him. When they came up out of the water. And again, these these pictures seem really inexplicable if sprinkling or pouring is permissible. The language assumes immersion It assumes to dip. 
Another set of circumstances that we read about in these accounts is an ample body of water. Again, Acts 8.36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? John 3.23, Now John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water. The texts show that a considerable amount of water was apparently necessary for baptism. Now that, of course, is not a requirement for sprinkling or pouring or some other mode. So again, this circumstance, it doesn't prove baptisms by immersion, but it supports the rest of the data that baptism is immersion. And, and a third uh, circumstance of New Testament baptism is this. Baptism is closely associated with burial. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him through baptism into death. We weren't sprinkled with a little bit of sickness. We were buried with him through baptism into death. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism. Again, Pastor Waldron puts it this way. Baptism involves the complete immersion of the person into the earth. It is irrelevant that sometimes, as in the case of Jesus, such burial was in a cave dug in the side of a hill. The immersion of the person in the earth is still complete. So again, the word supports not sprinkling. It supports the idea of entombment. When we are dipped into the water, we are entombed in the water. We are imitating the death. We are identifying with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those are the first two arguments from the meaning of the word and from the circumstances in the descriptions of baptism in the New Testament. The third is this, from the figurative use of the word in the New Testament. Its usage is consistent with the idea of immersion. And again, I wouldn't say in a strict sense this proves that baptism must be immersion because we never argue from a figurative use of a word to a literal use. You always do it the other way around, right? Um, so just like these circumstances, I wouldn't say that they prove. I would say they support um, baptism as immersion. Mark 10.38, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Luke 12.50, but I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Again, Christ wasn't sprinkled with trouble. It wasn't lightly poured on him. It was copiously poured out on him. He was overwhelmed with a tidal wave of grief. He was engulfed in sorrows. He was plunged into it. He was immersed in suffering and death. And so we say we, we simply don't see here any, any reason to take this word in any broader sense, in any rather unnatural sense, than it is overwhelmingly used in both secular and New Testament Greek. All right? So when people say, how do you prove that from the Bible, that, it's, that baptism is immersion? The meaning of the word, the circumstances of the baptisms, 
and what it is meant to represent. All right? Question five. Is sprinkling or pouring an adequate replacement for immersion? And I, I want to rather plainly say, no, these, these modes are not uh, the biblical command, nor are they ever given to us as an example. We don't have a clear New Testament command to commemorate Christ's death by being rantidzoed, which is sprinkled, or partially dipped or poured upon. We don't have any command, nor do we have any examples. And remember, baptism doesn't mean and is never used to mean in the New Testament, and again, this is not typically argued against, um, to sprinkle or pour. The words for sprinkle and pour in the New Testament are there, but they don't ever describe baptism. And of course, the circumstances of New Testament baptism, the examples don't support it. So the scriptural data leads us to conclude that God has clearly spoken to the manner or mode of baptism. It's by immersion into water. Other practices are, as the Catechism says, the tradition of men. Now, for some of you, the tradition of men is a very light, offhanded little, oh, yeah. Mm. But understand, and, and I mean this gently, I mean this kindly, uh, them's fighting words. Um, in the worship of God, the traditions of men are things that turn God's um, ways into something displeasing to him. They're never spoken about positively in the New Testament like that. Yes, there are the traditions of the apostles, which are spoken of positively. But the traditions of men are not. And they've they've picked that phrase here to be very clear that they firmly believe, as, as I do, as I believe we should, um, that to, that to uh, supposedly baptize, to immerse someone by sprinkling them, is, is not immersion, is not baptism. All right? Well, one last, uh, I think it's the last question. Yes. Who is the believer identified with in baptism? The answer is the triune God. There's more than water and an action. There's into the name of, right? Baptism is the placing of God's name upon a person. It's identifying him with Christ. It's identifying him or her with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ's command is very clear. Go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is the identification of the one being baptized to the one in whose name they are baptized. So baptism symbolizes joining oneself in covenant to God and becoming his follower. And remember, this is not a light thing. This is not a small thing. It's not a temporary thing. It's a wholehearted, it's a baptism thing. It's a submersion. It's an identification. And so it should be according to the command and example of Christ and done that way. Now, one of the things that we usually have to ask our Pentecostal friends who start coming to the church and want to join, and they say, hey, I'm seeing all these things and I'm learning, and I'm," we often have to ask them, tell me about your baptism. Were you baptized into the name of the triune God? 
or were you simply baptized into the name of Jesus? Now, there are, of course, cases in Acts where people are baptized into the name of Jesus, and that isn't necessarily wrong. It's not as full and clear as perhaps it ought to be in our practice, but it isn't necessarily wrong. But then the question has to be asked in Pentecostal or charismatic circles, who did they think Jesus was? Because the majority of American Pentecostals are not Trinitarians. They're actually modalists. They're heretical. Now, thank, thank God, not all are. Some of them are our brothers and sisters. But many, and some of the most popular ones, are, are not. They don't actually believe in three persons, one essence. They believe in one God who has displayed himself in three different ways at three different times. That the Father is the same person as the Son, and the Son is the same person as the Spirit. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the church has believed through the centuries. But it means if you've been baptized into that name, you've been baptized into the name of a false god. And so we've had some baptisms um, where the person said, I, I don't know whose name I was baptized into. And we have tried to find out what that church, what their particular church or pastor believed about the Trinity and other things. And and couldn't do it, and they couldn't remember ever being taught about it. So they, so we baptized them. Right? They wanted to be baptized. I sought advice from other pastors, and, and it wasn't at all clear that when they went under the water before, they had actually been baptized into the name of. They were not wearing the name Christian in, in the true and proper sense. Uh, uh, John Carlos is a brother that that was true of. Um, and he had a zeal to do it God's way, and, and so we, uh, with God's help, helped him do that. All right? Questions about any of, any of this, or even things from the morning sermon, since that seems to have been a popular topic of conversation today in some places.